he was a crazy mix of personalities. He was uh, very charming, but still a bon vivant. He, lo- he loved life, he loved women, and he loved Julia. That is David Hyde Pierce, and we are talking about Paul Child, the character David brings to life in the most beautiful way on Julia. On this episode, we're going to learn more about Paul and the very modern marriage of Paul and Julia Child. At a time when men were expected to be the breadwinners, Paul put his time and creative energy behind supporting his wife, who was on the cusp of becoming a household name. What made him such a supportive spouse? We're going to find out. Welcome to Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, the HBO Max original series inspired by the life of Julia Child. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond, and each week I recap a new episode of Julia and chat with special guests about the making of the show and the cultural impact of our culinary icon. I'll be checking in with the delightful David Hyde Pierce, who will share what drew him to the role of Paul Child. Then, author and journalist Alex Prudhomme stops by to talk about Paul, who happened to be his granduncle. Alex is quite the Paul and Julia expert, having co-written Julia's classic memoir, My Life in France, a must-read for any Julia fan. Oh, come on. Come on, what is this, a tea party? We have an episode to tech. Okay, okay, teacups down, coffee cups, whatever you're drinking. Let's dish on the latest episode, the Petty Four episode. Albert Duhamel's worst fears have been realized. He has been upstaged by a quiche. A good review for the French chef in the local paper sets him off. Now, this station has a higher mandate to elevate and educate the public. Maybe Julia's what we've been missing. Well, Julia wouldn't have a show if she went, my guest first. I made that woman. Hmm. Julia and Alice Neyman might have some thoughts on that. Julia walks into her kitchen where trays of petty fours for her show are awaiting some final decoration. The phone rings, and it's a fan, asking Julia for advice. Julia was listed in the local phone book, even when she was famous. The call volume picked up significantly on Thanksgiving. Well, I've no idea who that was. So some woman who watched the Cocker Van episode put Grand Marnier in her stock. Fourth call this week. I suppose people really do have televisions. Should we unlist our number? Well, how else will they get in touch? Julia wants to be helpful, but as we'll learn, the attention is starting to unnerve her a bit. Alice, meanwhile, is proving to be the best business mind over at WGBH. She has decided other public TV stations should air the French chef and pay for the privilege. She starts dialing for dollars, and Albert catches wind. Did I just hear you say the French chef? I, I said my friend Seth. He's on the phone. You don't know him. Hang up. Julia arrives on set with the Petty Fours. Everyone is excited about the little desserts and the review of the show, with a few exceptions. WGBH boss Hunter Fox pulls Julia aside. He proceeds to gaslight her over the review in the newspaper. Just one thing. Next time, make sure to highlight WGBH as a whole. Try and remember the hand that feeds you. Hmm? Oh, no, no, no. Nobody spoke to me. I didn't even know about the article until the moment ago. Sure, of course, but next time you'll have to remember you're part of a team. Implying our other shows are boring, it's insulting, Julia. Yes, of course, Hunter, but there can't be a next time if there wasn't a first time. It gets worse. Hunter tells Julia to apologize to Albert. Julia is baffled and a bit miffed, but once again turns to her editor, Judith Jones, to cook up a little scheme. Could Judith get one of her famous authors to appear on Albert's show? 
You need a... Distract a jealous man-child with a shiny object favor. Oh, Judith, you are wicked, but by George, I think you've got it. Next, we're at the pre-opening party for Paul's big show at a local art gallery. The usually composed Paul is nervous. I'm afraid my art is less compelling than the charcuterie board. The event is well attended by local luminaries, including playwright Thornton Wilder and poet Sylvia Plath. Sylvia, by the way, was born in Boston and, like Julia, attended Smith College. And Thornton, his play, Old Town, debuted in Boston. Paul thanks his muse, Julia, and everyone celebrates his first sale of a painting. Back home, Paul and Julia dance. He is elated. I felt like a debutante at her coming out party. Julia takes a little break from WGBH and heads to her alma mater, Smith College, one of the famous Seven Sister Schools. She's a featured speaker on campus and reconnects with some chums. Julia actually did graduate from Smith in 1934, and the school even celebrates a Julia Child Day. She donated her house in Cambridge to the school, and the kitchen, as many of you know, went to the Smithsonian. I'm just tickled pink to be here with you ladies. Well, aren't you the girl who almost set the dorms on fire every time she made toast? (laughs) Thank you, Hazel. It takes some of us years of practice to perfect a grilled cheese sandwich. Julia away, it's up to Avis to keep a dejected Paul company at the art gallery. He's only sold a few pieces. I feel like an old fool. No one thinks you're old. (laughs) This is what you wanted. The work is great. Just enjoy the ride. You know, the only painting Van Gogh ever sold was to his brother when he was 30. See? Van Gogh never gave up. Oh, he did, actually. Julia has an awkward walk across campus with Iris, one of her Smith College sisters. Iris credits her sexual awakening to a night of skinny dipping and drinking gin with Julia who has no recollection of the evening. Or has Julia repressed it? A trip down memory lane is often better off a stroll than a full-blown hike. Albert scores a small victory. John Updike is coming on his show. But he has no idea Judith, via Julia, has orchestrated this little coup. Albert almost blows the interview while Alice scores her first sale to the public television station in San Francisco. Paul and Julia have a heart-to-heart. Paul tells Julia he realizes he'll never be a great artist. Julia is the artist in the family, he says, and he is here to support her. And Julia, for her part, reveals that the attention she's garnering for the French chef might be a little too much. I'm scared, Paul. Really isn't just a jealousy. The adoration can be hard, too. You're teaching Americans how to taste life, and they're listening. That's goddamn huge. It may be too huge. For me, at least. Will Julia learn to live with her newfound fame? Will Paul be comfortable in his new role? And will Albert finally calm down? We'll find out more next week. But now, let's chat with our first guest. David Hyde Pierce, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so curious, what attracted you to this project? The script, the pilot script, was so well written. You know, I didn't know that much about Paul Child. And so just to get a glimpse of him from that... I found him so fascinating, and their relationship, the the deep, loving uh, relationship between Julia and Paul was just, um, uh, just drew me in, so I, I wanted to be part of it. What did you know about Julia Child prior to this? 
as a kid, I have vague memories of seeing her on TV. I don't know. My mom was a a good cook. I don't know how much she would have watched Julia, but uh, she was certainly around on the airwaves. And maybe because I was watching kids stuff on PBS that I would catch glimpses of her. And then by the time Dan Aykroyd was doing his parody on Saturday Night Live, I certainly knew who she was. So I knew who he was parodying. So always aware of her because she was just such a part of American culture for so long. And then really getting to know her on this show. Paul is someone we didn't know as well. Tell us who Paul Child is. Oh, dear Paul. I just love this man. He, he's an extraordinary person. He was so talented in so many directions. He was a musician. He, he played the violin. He had a twin brother who played the cello. And uh, when he was a little boy, his twin brother was playing with him and somehow had a sewing needle and inadvertently stuck it in Paul's eye. And he was blind in one eye. He therefore then went on to become an artist and a painter, and a very skillful drawer, and he taught art. He also, he and his brother both studied judo. Paul ended up being a black belt in judo. He learned how to make furniture. He repaired stained glass in cathedrals in France. He was, uh, as a young man, traveled on ships uh, up and down the East Coast and through the Panama Canal. He worked in L.A. doing set design paintings and demonstrating furniture in shop windows. And then he went into uh, the what was the CIA the OSS of World War II, putting all his talents to use uh, in the war effort, which is where he met Julia. So it's just a crazy mix of things. And and also he was a crazy mix of personalities. He was uh, very charming, but still a bon vivant. He, lo- he loved life. He loved women. And he loved Julia. You have played so many amazing characters over the years. Is there any difference in how you approach portraying a real person versus a fictional character? I guess I would say no, because even playing a fictional character, well, for example, I did a production of um, Hello, Dolly, and I played Horace Vandergelder, who's a made-up person from a, uh, a play. Wait, that's not a true story. I, I'll, I'll, I'm sorry. <laughs> this, it's like Santa Claus. I hate doing this to people. But, uh, but, but what I did was I did a lot of research on what a Yonkers dialect at the turn of century would be, what the history of the Dutch in New York was, all this stuff, just because I always feel like you never know. You never know what's going to spark something or influence a choice that you make. And same thing now with playing Paul. There's a lot of research I do and have done and will continue to do, but the writers are creating a show which is based in reality. It's not a documentary. So I, I don't do that stuff to make sure everything's accurate. I do it to discover him and make sure I do justice to him because I, I, I think he's incredible. Let's talk about episode four. There are all those amazing moments in the art gallery. What were some favorite moments of yours? I think I have two favorite moments uh, from that. This is a, an episode where Paul is given the opportunity to um, actually exhibit his art, his paintings and his photographs. And it's a huge opportunity for him. Julia can't be there for the opening. She ha- she's going to a college reunion. And on the actual night of the opening, they've had a preview which where all these people showed up and it was celebrities and it just seemed fantastic. But on the actual opening, there aren't many people there, not a lot of interest. And their friend Avis, played by B.B. Newworth, is with him in the gallery. And kind of uncharacteristically, their relationship has been a little bit thorny uh, through most of the show. They, I think they share... Uh, are there there may be a little bit jealous of each other's relationship with Julia and she is uncharacteristically kind and supportive of him and i think that's really beautiful both in the writing and especially in the way bb played it and then i love the subsequent scene 
when Julia has returned from her college reunion and is sitting with Paul in the gallery, looking at the work and each talking about where they are heading in life. I think it's a really beautifully written moment between the two, these two people who are at a deeply important transition point in each of their lives, each going in different directions, but holding on to each other as they go. There's so many poignant moments in this episode. Yeah. It's a beautiful episode. Yeah. Were there any small details that you used to bring the character of Paul to life? Well, he had those glasses. Uh, over the years, he wore different glasses, but prominently in this period, he had these big black glasses. So I made sure I wore those. John, our costume designer, went wild with ascots. Uh, he found the most, you know, he's, he's like the writers, you know, you take the reality that you see in the photos, but then you use your creative imagination. And he created a whole world of ascots. You did wear a lot of ascots. A lot of ascots. In this series. Safe to say more than I have ever worn <laughs> in my life, which is zero. I feel like that with those clothes, that it, with all the cardigans and the ascots and the hats and the whatever, that, that there was some inner thing of him that just this small, quiet man in these muted colors in his studio painting that was just essential to him. I did love Paul's wardrobe through the whole show. Good. Was that a lot of fun? Yes. Yes, everything. Matching pajamas with Julia and stuff like that, which is absolutely uh, accurate. Both accuracy and whimsy in that in that costume department. It's just, just great. One of the remarkable things about Paul is how relaxed he seemed about the whole role reversal that took place with him and Julia. As you know, as his career was ending, Julia's was beginning to flourish. What was it about Paul that allowed him to handle that transition so well? I think it's because... That transition was a moment in a very, 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 very long, rich relationship that they'd already had together, where they had uh, introduced each other, discovered with each other things like exotic Chinese food when they were working in, in the OSS during World War II, that he introduced her to French culture and food, and then she discovered the Cordon Bleu. And so she started taking off on her own and he supported her in that. And as she was writing the cookbook, he helped doing illustrations and taking photographs. And so that was, it was always a partnership. So I feel like at this moment when this new event happened, it was still a partnership. He had to negotiate, I'm sure, uh, what it is like for a man at that era who was supposed to be the man, supposed to be the breadwinner, supposed to be the head of the household. They were a very liberal uh, couple, uh, so maybe had a broader perspective on how relationships could go. But still, we all have egos. We all have a sense of self and a sense of recognition. And I think for Paul, too, so much of his frustration in his career as a diplomat was he just never got the recognition he and Julia felt that he deserved. In a way, I think it makes it even more beautiful that maybe it wasn't so easy as he made it seem, but he absolutely did it for her and went along happily on that ride. We talked about the love story between Paul and Julia. I absolutely love the relationship between Paul and Avis. As you mentioned, they have so many fabulous moments. Episode four is a great example of that, and it only builds over the the upcoming episodes. Tell us a little bit about Paul and Avis. Well, Avis was, in fact, a, a very dear friend of Julia and Paul's. In fact, she was I think had a lot of uh, a lot to do with ultimately Julia finding Judith Jones, her editor, for the uh, Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and also literally found them their house in Cambridge. And she and her now late husband, they were uh, dear friends. And so 
that has stayed as our show starts her husband has has passed away so she's a widow and alone i think there is this friction between avis and, and paul that has to do with an unspoken feeling of no she's my friend no she's my friend no i know what's best for her no i know what's best for her i think there's a hidden conflict for paul which is he lost the love of his life edith kennedy she died and julia child is the love of his life how do you reconcile having two loves of your life is that a thing is that possible well avis lost her husband, who was the love of her life. And she has Julia, who she just adores. And I just sometimes think that tremor in the force, whatever that is, that sort of unreconciled thing may in some way inform this conflict between them. But God bless the writers, because they've also found ways that these two very smart, very loving people are also able to care for each other and be there for each other and for Julia. In the beginning, there's so many amazing scenes with you and Bibi. Were the writers able to have fun with that because you and Bibi have such a rich history, you know, all those years on Frasier together? When Bibi was cast as Avis, I wasn't yet a part of the project. Certainly in the pilot, where there is this uh, sort of antagonism between them about Julia, I don't think that was written with our relationship, our acting relationship, or our previous roles on Frasier in mind. I do know that because Bibi and I did work together all those years, 11 years on Frasier, we love each other. Also, we both come from the theater, so we we have similar ways of working. I think they saw that there was something there. And I know when people write series, my husband is a writer. Um, if you see like a glimmer of, oh, maybe we could, maybe there's a story there. It's like, you know, water in the desert or something. And so I know that they followed it because they thought there was potential there. And I think the more they wrote to it, the more they enjoyed it. And But also, and this is by their good writers, they didn't just keep writing this funny conflict. They gave each character uh, their own depth and uh, and richness that allowed it to go in a lot of different directions. You mentioned theater. There are a lot of playwrights on this, a lot of actors from theater. Why do you think so many of you coalesced around this project? Well, they're very literate characters, uh, all of the people involved. Theater is about words as much as it is about images, whereas film and television can be more just about the images. This opportunity for all of us to use what we've grown up doing in a way that made sense for these characters and for these stories it's nice, too, because part of what the show, not only this show, but what Julia's show is about, was talking to America, talking not just to literate people, but just talking to anybody, making this stuff accessible, not because you needed to swallow your medicine, just because it's a, it's a part of the world that a lot of Americans weren't exposed to. All right. We're going to talk about food. Okay. Do you cook? I don't. When my husband and I met, we were both young actors in New York. Uh, he is and was a very talented cook. And he actually went to uh, Peter Kump's cooking school oh, really? here in New York and trained and had his own catering business. So I sort of, in those years, worked as a sous chef for him. And I learned a little bit about that end of the business. But I am not, he has a very creative sort of cooking mind, uh, which I do not have. But you have, it sounds like you might have technical chops. I have some, yeah, literally some technical chops that I can do <laughs> of onions and carrots and things <laughs> like that. I appreciate good food, and my mom was a good cook, and my my sisters are, are great cooks. So uh, I've ha I've been exposed to good food. You know what mise en place is? I do. It's um, there are mice in our house. Isn't that what it means? <laughs> so how have you <laughs> fed yourself all these years? <laughs> Very simply, I'll do uh, uh, eggs in a microwave. 
spray a cup with olive oil, put a couple eggs in, stir them up, and zap them, and uh, and you've got scrambled eggs. But you just broke some hearts out there. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but I'll, you know. Do you go to restaurants a lot? Well, not in the oh, last right, two right. years. Yeah. Uh, mm. But yeah, there's a wonderful restaurant in New York uh, called Cafe Luxembourg. And when Brian and I were first together, we would maybe once a year be able to save up the money to go there as our special go-to place and have the cassoulet if it was in winter or something like that. And now, because we both worked in television and we have a little bit more money than we had, it's uh, it's one of our favorite places. It's just uh, just a great restaurant and great feeling of uh, home and terrific food. A New York institution. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. My last question for you. Yes. If Julia and Paul were coming over for dinner, mm-hmm. What's the one thing you would make and who's one person you would invite to join you? Okay, obviously I would make uh, eggs in a microwave. No, here's what I uh, here's what I would do. It's funny, uh, Brian and I were talking about this, this idea. Uh, first of all, the one person I would invite would be Brian so he could actually cook. And the thing he wanted to make for them is her recipe of, uh, I think it's called melon chicken, which is uh, you take a chicken, you completely debone it, and fill it with uh, thing, ham and, and uh, I forget what else. Uh, and you sort of truss it up its skin so that it's round. It looks like a melon. It's all stuffed. And he said, this is Brian talking. He said, you know, it's really not that hard and it looks really difficult. And I thought, yeah. But anyway, that's what he would serve to them, especially because I think that's something he said she came to later in life, a recipe she came to later in life. But, oh, I uh, love that. I, don't even, I didn't even know what that was, so I'm look going it up. to look it up. It's, it's incredible. The idea of being able to sit down to a, to a meal with them, it would be just awesome. Well, David, thank you so much. Your portrayal of Paul is just so beautiful. And I love the series so much. And it's an Thanks. honor to thank talk you. to you. Uh, this has been great. Thank you so much to David Hyde Pierce. Next up is an expert on Paul and Julia. It's their grandnephew, the author and journalist Alex Prudhomme. Alex co-wrote the memoir My Life in France with Julia and his latest work, is a children's book about Julia called Born Hungry. Alex, welcome to Dishing on Julia. Thanks, Carrie. It's really good to be here. I would love to know what your connection is to Paul and Julia. Well, Paul was the twin brother of my grandfather, Charles Child. And so technically, he's my grand uncle. And that makes Julia my grand aunt. Although I usually say great aunt. And Paul and Julia were quite uh, a, lot, a good big part of our lives growing up. They never had kids of their own, but they treated my sisters and my cousins and me like surrogate grandchildren. And we were very lucky to spend time with them here in New York City than when they would come down here for shows or so on, or in Cambridge where they lived, up near Boston, or up in Maine where we have a family house, or in France where they had a place, or uh, in California where they retired. Thanksgivings were always our favorite family holiday. I was very lucky, I should just say, that uh, not only Julia, but my grandmother, my aunts, my mother were really good cooks. And so we were a foodie family before that was a thing. I'm so jealous <laughs> because yeah. I do not come from a foodie family. Ah. My family does their best at Thanksgiving. Your Thanksgivings must have been spectacular. They were really fun. Yeah, really fun. Still are. Like I said, they treated us like surrogate grandchildren, so we were lucky to see them. But then they would disappear and, and they would go off and live their fabulous lives. <laughs> and the funny thing is growing up as a kid— We used to watch Julia on The French Chef in our little tiny black and white TV back in the day, you know, and it was not a big television. And then she would show up at my parents' apartment 
uh, having come from the studio, uh, and she'd come over for dinner. And when you're a little kid, you think, oh, yeah, she just stepped out of the TV, you know. <laughs> Later on, you kind of figure out uh, the separation. But it, it was fun knowing her both as a television celebrity uh, and also as a member of the family who was essentially the same person. The Julia you saw on TV was the Julia that I knew. And even at the end of her life, when I was lucky enough to help her write her memoir, My Life in France, and it was just the two of us in a room, she was cracking wise, asking questions, you know, totally curious about me and the family and what was going on geopolitically or what the gossip was from Hollywood, whatever. Just very lively, funny, mischievous, creative, and very thoughtful, too. So that Julia you saw on TV was the real Julia. How about Paul? It's funny because they say opposites attract. <laughs> Julia was tall and loud and bright and sunny. Paul was the opposite. He was much shorter, much quieter, more cerebral, a wonderful artist. They were really two sides of a coin, as they used to say. Uh, they would sign their letters JP with the letters interlinked as if they were sort of one being with these two sides. It was fascinating. to Their, their marriage was really remarkable. Only in the sense that it was so perfect as to be almost unattainable. <laughs> I mean, now that I have a family with kids and responsibilities, I think that their success and their joie de vivre, they really fed off of each other. Um, and I kind of intuited that as a kid. And, and I appreciate it all the more now as an adult because I just see, of course, it wasn't always perfect. They're human beings. They're fallible. They had problems. They had quite a few problems in their private lives that people don't know about, health problems and so on. Um, but they loved each other deeply, and they really were symbiotic in their relationship. It's so interesting that you use the term unattainable because that has popped into my mind a few times. Yeah. You know, they've been famously portrayed now several times. And I think, is this too good to be true? Is this a lot of creative license, or was the relationship really like this? It was really like that. It really was. When we wrote Julia's memoir, uh, she dedicated it to Paul because she said, without Paul Child, I would not have had my career. And that's true. And I know you had to nudge yes, your grand-aunt yes, to, yes, to do that book. Yes, she had been talking about doing a memoir of her favorite years of her life. is when, when they went to France from 1948 to 1954 and lived there. Paul was working in the U.S. Embassy as a cultural attache. Julia was an anonymous housewife, diplomatic wife, who learned to cook and fell in love with France and its food, uh, met some French friends, and began to teach cookery and joined their project in creating a French cookbook for the American market. And in her Julia way, she sort of subtly took over the project and uh, reshaped it, really gave it structure, uh, began sending their recipes back to her sister and friends here in the States so they could try those French recipes in American kitchens with American ingredients. You know, she really took this kind of very American approach to creating recipes. So her French friends would say, oh, you do a little soupçon of this and a dash of that, you know, a little, little butter here, a little salt there. And she would always say, well, how much salt and how much butter? And they'd say, oh, Julia, you know. You, no, I don't know. And I think this comes from the fact that she learned to cook relatively late in life. She didn't know how to cook growing up because she had grown up in an upper middle class household in Pasadena. And they had a cook. And so there was no reason for her to go into the kitchen except to eat. 
And um, I have a kid's book that's just come out. It's called Born Hungry. That's right. Congratulations. Thank you. And the title comes from something she used to say, which was, I was born hungry, not a cook. It's one of those classic Julia lines that seems very simple, but it's actually quite profound, meaning everybody has to learn how to cook. And if I can do it beginning at age 37, you can too. And you just have to apply yourself. And that was a very profound, empowering statement for a lot of people in the 60s and 70s, particularly women, but not only women. And uh, it went along with a lot of the other things she said. And it, it was just her attitude that, hey, if I can do it, you can do it. And I don't think she operated out of a sense of vanity. You know, she loved being a, a, a celebrity because it was fun and she was a ham. But what she she really considered herself a teacher and a student. She used to say, I'm an eternal pupil, meaning that you can always continue to learn right up until your dying day, which she did. Uh, I mean, I was with her two days before her death at age 91.99. She was two days before her 92nd birthday. And she was talking about, oh, I want to go to a Chicago slaughterhouse and I want to go lobster fishing in Maine. And, you know, I want to teach kids how to make a chocolate cake. <laughs> this was two days before she died. And that's just so quintessential, Julia. I love that you said the Julia on screen yeah. was the Julia that you got in real life. Yeah. But how about Paul? I mm. mean, I know we didn't have any. Paul wasn't on television with Julia. What he was, was he like? once. In oh, he one was? episode, he was. And he plays a character, sort of a husband who uh, is coming home from work and his boss wants to come over for dinner at the last minute. And so Paul, playing the husband, calls Julia at home and says, darling, my boss is coming home. Could you whip up something? And she goes, ah, yes, I have just the thing, a ham steak. And she teaches you how to make a ham steak. And it's a great little moment. Oh, that's some good uh, Julia trivia there, Alex. And he's got this Brahmin, this Boston Brahmin accent. I want to talk about Paul's career and then the transition to Julia's career. Mm. Because Julia seemed content for their lives to revolve around Paul's State Department career. Mm. Was Paul as content when things started to revolve around Julia's? Very much so. One of the things that's interesting in the show is there it seems to be a tension between Paul and Julia over her rise to stardom and Paul feeling somewhat left out. In real life, that wasn't quite what happened. What happened in real life was that Paul had been sort of the leader, if you will, of the relationship for many years. He had been the diplomat who brought her to France. He uh, was in the embassy. He was giving speeches and opening art galleries and uh, visiting mayors and very much of an out front political public role. Julia, as I said, was this obscure housewife who became obsessed with food. <laughs> and she was teaching, but it was six to 10 students in her apartment. So by 1961, when he quit the State Department, her book came out that October, October of 61. Paul had retired and was contemplating a life of quiet art making. Uh, and she was going to teach a few classes in their house. And they were going to have a, a really nice time together and not be professionals because they had been not only were they posted to France, but they were later posted to Germany and Norway and Washington, D.C., and they'd been moving around the world for, for Their whole 20 adult years. lives, yeah. right? And they were ready for a break and to t- chill out. But fate had other ideas, and uh, luckily for all of us, Julia got on television in 1963. But Paul was instrumental in that. He was key. He was the behind-the-scenes guy. 
uh, that made it possible. And he was very, in real life, he was very happy to step back and be the eminence grise, the, the, the gray power behind the scenes. Why was he so open to this role reversal? Well, they had a very equal relationships. They always did. She was a strong personality, but he was a strong personality in a, in a different way, in a quiet way. So there were sometimes sparks between them, but as with any marriage. But he was very in love with her and, and, and very supportive of her. And she was really his muse. And so he was happy to step back and to push her forward. And she was happy to finally be in the spotlight because that's her natural place to be. So it really um, just comes down to they were modern. They were modern. That's a good way of putting it. Exactly. They were ahead of their time. Julia used to call Paul my chief mushroom dicer, dishwasher, first line editor, staff photographer, business manager, and husband. He was so worldly. And I just feel like there aren't a lot of folks like Paul Child around anymore. I don't think there were a lot of Paul Childs. Even back then? Back then. Would you ever write a book about Paul? Well, the photo book, Francis a Feast, is largely uh, my tribute to Paul. Uh, because I explain all of this in the course of talking about their years together in France and then how he became a photographer, how he got to know all the most famous photographers of the day. And really, he could have been one of them. And they thought about it. He thought about quitting the State Department and becoming a full-time photographic artist and just staying in Paris. But they also saw how difficult that life could be. And uh, they liked the security of the United States government paycheck and, uh, and Julia did come from money. So and she Julia came from money. She but, wasn't ready for the starving artist life. Yeah. But, you know, people make a big deal out of it. To tell you the truth, she didn't get that much money from her father. She got some, for sure, which definitely made it doable. But they were living in this flat in Paris with no heat. And it was really cold. And there's some funny pictures of them, like, all bundled up. And, you know, I don't think you would do that if you had the mo- money to uh, afford a, a fancier place. I mean, clearly they weren't starving. I think they spent their money on going out to eat or buying things at the marketplace. But, you know, their priorities were my priorities, essentially, that, you know, education, life experience, travel, those are the things that are more important. Her father, Big John McWilliams, who she called Pop, was the opposite. He was a Pasadena right-wing businessman who saw the world uh, in terms of dollars and cents. And so he and Paul were sort of polar opposites. And Julia kind of bounced back and forth because she actually had a lot of her father in herself, although she was more intellectually drawn to Paul's position. But there was a tough side of Julia and a business side of Julia. And I write about this in in The French Chef in America, the book about this period I wrote. She was bringing more to the table than her collaborator, Sim Quebec, business-wise, because she had gotten on television she had been on the cover of Time magazine. She won an Emmy and a Peabody. She had been invited to the White House. And she felt that she was selling more copies of their book in America than Simca was in France. And that was true. Don't you love that Isabella Rossellini plays Simca? I love Isabella Rossellini. And I she love does Isabella. It. That one little snippet is so perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for more. Simca was a totally fascinating, crazy character. And I only met her a couple of times as a kid. She sort of let Simca know that Julia should be getting more of the revenue from their project. And Simka ultimately agreed after, you know, squawking for a bit uh, because Julia had the numbers. But, you know, not everybody would do that. And and that shows you that she, you know, had strong uh, self-belief and was willing to use a sharp elbow now and then to, to get her way. 
since we're talking about the show, I'm so curious, what do you think about David Hyde Pierce as Paul? Oh, well, I've been a longtime fan of David Hyde Pierce, and I think it's really good casting. The costumes are just right. Uh, He's got, you know, thick, dark-rimmed glasses, the clothing, even the color choices of the of the clothing, very Paul. That Have you noticed the turquoise ring in yes. every scene? Is that a real thing? That's a real thing. I have not consulted David Hyde Pierce, but I did help Stanley Tucci with his characterization of Paul. One of the notes I gave to Stan was turquoise ring, which was interesting because some people considered that sort of effeminate, and yet Paul was actually quite macho. Why was the ring so special? My personal suspicion is that it was a way of signaling to the world, I am an artist, without having to say anything. Turquoise is often associated with creative people for one reason or another, you know, like Georgia O'Keeffe. And I suspect that it was a semiotic signal, uh, as were his clothing, his his clothes, his outfits. Uh, He was a bit of a dandy, uh, but not in a conventional way. He wouldn't wear three-piece suits, for example, which Big John McWilliams, Julia's father, did, at which they show... John Cromwell in the in the in the show, fabulous! What a great casting because he kind of looks like Big John. He's so mean. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Big John was a little mean, <laughs> and yet they do show Julia and Big John with this great kind of father daughter moment, and she's kind of working him for some more money. <laughs> I love that because I think that's probably I wasn't there, but I think that's probably what happened. I really just loved that he made Paul his own. I particularly like the scenes when Paul's having his art show in the gallery, which was a struggle for him, interestingly. He only had a few shows, even though he was really talented. I suspect he didn't really care so much about commercial success. He just loved to make the work, as Julia loved to cook and teach. And the success was really nice, but it wasn't the reason that they did what they did. There's a sort of poignancy to those art shows where Julia is in the at least in the television show, she's becoming a celebrity. David Hyde Pierce's version of Paul is sort of desperate for attention in his, and, and the accolades that, uh, for his art. I don't think it was that way in real life. Paul was not, uh, didn't have that about him. He just really loved to do his work, and his work survives him. And it's, you know, we have some, and they're kind of spread all over the place, but they're, they're wonderful. You are so close to this. Mm. You not only have written about them for years, but you are related to them. And it has to be so complicated. Maybe that's the right word. So complicated yeah. to watch. It's, it's, it is hard. I have to say, when I saw the them. first episode, mm-hmm. I, was, it, I, I had to take a deep breath and remind myself, this is not a documentary. Right. <laughs> right. There is a documentary that's just come out. It's called Julia. It's very good. <laughs> and you can watch that. <laughs> you can watch that. Want I recommend it. I'm in it. Uh, <laughs> you can see me going on. It's got a lot of food and it's lovely. But you're an artist also. Yeah. How do you give creative license? Well, I, I have to remind myself it's not a documentary because I did know these people and there's enough truth in there that it's pretty close. And yet it is a drama. It's a television drama. It's a very specific thing. I have to let my inner control freak go and just enjoy it for what it is. (laughs) Yeah. Right. I think anybody who's a creative person can understand that. As a family member, you must be amazed that there's just this inexhaustible appetite for all things Julia. It, It is remarkable. She died in 2004, and we're still talking about her. 
not only are we talking about it, but there are more and more projects coming out about her all the time. And she, you know, she has become with the latest iteration of the American food movement, kind of the patron saint or the, I think of her as sort of the fairy godmother of the, of the modern food movement. And she was also a revolutionary. I call her a revolutionary in pearls. Paul always said people mistook Julia the clown, Julia the performer for the revolutionary who radically changed the American diet and the American relationship to food in general. It wasn't just what we were eating. It was how we ate, what tools we used. We would, you know, people were going out to restaurants more. I think some of that stuff was a natural evolution, but Julia turbocharged it uh, starting in 1963, really starting in 61 when Mastering the Art of French Cooking was published. In, in the French Chef in America, I talk about that. I met some of her neighbors in, in Cambridge who are sadly no longer with us, but who I was able to interview. And they said, you could not imagine how profound the change was when Julia moved into the neighborhood and got everybody cooking, competing with each other. All these highly educated women who were not employed, had all this energy, and they channeled it into food and entertaining in a whole new way. And it was a radical shift. And it came at a point in American history, which was a, a, a moment of radical shift, the 60s and 70s. And so, again, she was the right person with the right message at the right time. You told me Julia's messages and her kind of rules. What would Paul's have been? Paul was very much about process. So there's um, some scenes where he is rehearsing Julia for the French chef at home. That was true. That was true to life. They created a set in their in their home kitchen, and she would rehearse making the bouffe bourguignon or the coco vin or whatever it was, and they would have the bowls, and he would say, now put this bowl over here instead of there. That way, when you swing, then the camera can see you. And he was a very visual person, so he saw it uh, as a camera lens might. He was also wonderful with words, and uh, as they depict humorously in the show, you know, she sometimes stumbled, and he would make cue cards. Now, the cue cards they have in the show are kind of fancy. The ones he made were very rudimentary. <laughs> he had one that said, uh, look here, dummy, with a big arrow pointing at the camera lens, because she would look off into the corners and look up at the lights. And he would, you know, there was one that said, you know, stop breathing, because she would, <gasps> you know, she would get all excited. <laughs> it didn't mean stop breathing. It meant stop huffing and buffing. But so those, that, that, that stuff really happened. And so he was instrumental and and again, he was kind of her corner man. He was her stage manager. And he was about process. He was about, you know, rehearse. Don't just go up there and wing it. So even though she's natural and um, confident in front of the camera, part of that is because she had spent 10 years cooking in obscurity and teaching. And part of it was because she had rehearsed for that specific show. She's such a natural. I didn't realize how much preparation went into each show. Yeah, yeah. And she was a workhorse. She would sleep maybe six hours a night. And I remember being at very boozy dinner parties at their place, and I would go to bed at midnight or one in the morning. And at six o'clock in the morning, you'd hear this thump, thump, thump downstairs. And it was Julia on her elliptical trainer. <laughs> and I would go running downstairs. What is that noise? Oh, there's Julia <laughs> working out. And then she'd, you know, she'd be always be cooking and she would always have the typewriter going. And she was just a, a, an incredible role model in so many ways. You had many a meal with Julia when you were working together on My Life in France. If you could have dinner with Paul and Julia, what would you make and who would you invite to join you? Wow, that's a big one. 
I'm, you know, it's tempted to say something like, you know, Escoffier and some of the great culinary giants. But... Or should we make it Paul? You just have dinner with Paul? Since no, no, we no. I think it's good that? because okay. actually okay. I th- you can't really separate them. I think Paul and Julia, you know, they were two sides of a coin, as they said. I would like to get the old, I'd like to get the band get back together again. I'd like to get the old gang. Uh, we would meet in, Pla- in, in uh, La Pichune, their house in the south of France. I would make something from the sea. I think I would start with some champagne, which they loved, uh, probably some oysters, maybe some caviar. Uh, then we'd move on to a fish dish, maybe Julia's bouillabaisse, which is a, a really rich and delicious fish stew. And then we'd have, obviously, uh, a salad vert, you know, a green salad. Uh, we'd have some some wine, some rosé, probably, since we'd be down in the south of France. A cafe filtre, you know, like dark uh, coffee. Uh, and I would... Uh, uh, a dessert would be probably a tart tatin, which is a caramelized apple tart, or maybe a rind de saba, which is the uh, flourless chocolate almond cake, which is one of Julia's favorites and really good. And the guests would be the, the old crew. It would be Julia and Paul, uh, Simka and her husband Jean, uh, Loisette, so the Trois Gourmands, who were the, Julia's partners in crime. I would love to have Judith Jones, her editor for many years uh, uh, at Knopf, who was our editor on, on My Life in France and was a legend. Maybe James Beard, who often spent time with them down there. Probably some family members and friends. Um, and it would be a real great family meal. If there's an extra <laughs> invitation, I'd love to come to that dinner. Uh, well, of course, Gary, you'd be invited. Yeah. Well, Alex, so good to see you. Thank you for sharing all your memories and for being so generous with your stories about Julia and Paul. Ah, my pleasure. Merci and bon appétit. That's it for this episode of Dishing on Julia, the official companion podcast of Julia, now streaming on HBO Max. Dishing on Julia is produced by Cherry Bomb Media. Thank you to the Cherry Bomb team, including executive producers Catherine Baker and Audrey Payne, special projects editor Donna Yen, associate producer Jenna Sadu, and editorial assistant Krista White. I'm your host, Carrie Diamond. Special thanks to Stephen Toll and the team at CityVox for the audio production. Check back as we dish on the latest episode of Julia and chat with our cast and crew and special industry guests. To Julia. To us. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show, like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.